What is the secret to living the Christian life? I contend that the key is incarnational Christian living. What do I mean by that? I don't think it's enough to merely tell people, be like Jesus. Because for most of us, if we just try harder to be like Jesus, it will result in an exercise of futility and failure and frustration on our part. Do you recall what the Apostle Paul said? I am crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's incarnational Christian living. It was Warren Wearsby who said the Christian life is not a series of ups and downs, but the Christian life is the process of ins and outs. What God works in us, we work out towards others. If God works his love in us, then we work his love out of us toward others. If God works his kindness in us, then we work his kindness out of us towards others. If God works his forgiveness in us, then we work his forgiveness out of us toward others. Johnny was an inquisitive seven-year-old. He came up to his pastor with the question, how big was Jesus? It was a question that caught the pastor off guard, but he thought on his feet quickly and said, well, I suppose Jesus was a good-sized man for his day. He worked in a carpenter shop his entire life, so probably he was six feet tall, 190 pounds. Why do you ask? And little Johnny said, well, pastor, you're always talking about asking Jesus into our heart. And if he's so big, and if I'm so small, and if I ask him into my heart, won't he stick out? The pastor looked at Johnny and said, you've got it. If Jesus lives inside of you, he will stick out out. Friends, that is incarnational Christian living. The Jesus that lives inside of us sticks out of us. Now, how do we live that life? I invite you to draw your sword. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We continue in our study of this New Testament letter. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read in your hearing verses 12 to 18. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 12. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. 
So how do you and I live the incarnational Christian life? Our passage gives us three scriptural suggestions. First, we work out. It's verses 12 and 13. Second, we stand out. It's verses 14, 15, and 16. And third, we pour out. Verses 17 and 18. First, we work out. Paul begins our passage by saying, Therefore, since you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That phrase, therefore, as you continue to obey, that connects our passage with the previous portion of Scripture. You may recall that in the immediate uh, preceding verses, Paul had been speaking about the name and fame of Christ. I summarize it this way, that Paul is saying, if you know his identity and you remember his activity, you will declare his supremacy. So if you know his identity, you remember his activity, you'll proclaim his supremacy. What is the identity of Christ? Well, Paul tells us, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or taken advantage of, but he made himself nothing. Scripture says he emptied himself. He was in appearance as a man. He is the God-man, for he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But you and I know the story, don't we? It doesn't end on gruesome Good Friday. But Jesus died on Friday, but on Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is exalted to the highest place. He's given the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is telling the church, he's saying, therefore, don't just be like Christ, but that Christ lives in you. That Christ lives in you. It's not so much that you just try harder and just grin and bear it, and somehow you eke out an existence that's similar to Jesus. Just try harder to be like Jesus. No, he says, that Jesus, who was obedient even to death, is the Jesus that's inside of you and he will prompt you to be obedient even to the point of death. And that Jesus who was obedient to the point of death that God exalted, that Jesus inside of you will prompt you to be obedient to death and God through Christ will exalt you as well. So Paul is linking these two passages together. And he's saying I want you to live the incarnational Christian life, and you ask the question, how do we do that? Paul says, first and foremost, work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That phrase that's translated work out is a second person plural present imperative. What does that mean? Second person plural, it's not just you, it's y'all. So that your sanctification does not happen in isolation. Your sanctification takes place as we collectively work out our salvation. So together we are working out our salvation. We work out this salvation in a community and we call that community 
church. So we need the church. We need the church not just so we can get stuff from the church. We need the church because with like-minded brothers and sisters, we are together working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's why the author of the Hebrew letter will say, do not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but do so all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. That as we see that we're on a crash collision course with the return of Christ, we need to be in church now more, more now than ever before. So together in singing and serving, together in praying and praising, together in ministry and mission. What are we doing? We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's second person plural. It is present, which means it's a continuous action. You don't just work out once. You continue to work out. It's a repeated action on a continual basis. It's present tense. It's imperative, which means it's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the actual word, work out, it, it means to work to the point of completion. It's the imagery of someone working to the point that the field is harvested. Working to the point that the gems are mined from the cave. So you get everything out of it that's valuable. You work to the point of completion. It's second person plural, present imperative. It's the idea that we work together to the point of completion. Work out your salvation. I want you to notice quickly and clearly that he does not say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. I know it's one word difference, but that one word makes all the difference. We do not work for our salvation. Salvation is a gift from God Almighty. Uh, you can't work hard enough. You can't work long enough. You can't work strong enough to merit or earn your salvation. But we do work out our salvation. And Paul says that we work out this salvation with fear and trembling. The word fear and trembling, they're synonyms. They mean that we do it in such a way that we have holy reverence and respect for God Almighty. So Paul tells the church, because Jesus is living inside of you, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he goes immediately into verse 13. For God works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure or purpose. Do you feel the tension of verses 12 and 13? In verse 12, Paul clearly says, you've got to work out your salvation. In verse 13, he clearly says, God works in your salvation. Do you feel the friction? Do you feel the tension and the struggle? When it comes to your salvation, who's it up to? Is it up to God or is it up to you? And the answer is not an either or, it's a both and. And I hope that you feel that biblical tension and you don't need to resolve that biblical tension because when it comes to your salvation, certainly it's initiated by God Almighty. God accomplishes your salvation. He is the one who sustains your salvation. But what he works in you, you are called to work out toward others. So salvation, yes, it's something that we receive and it's something that we do. There is an ethical component to the gospel. 
How we live our lives, what we do for the sake of the gospel, it really does make a difference. What God works in us, we work out toward others. Now, don't ever get that backwards. Don't get it out of whack. Don't get it out of course. Don't get it out of perspective. We don't do something in order to receive something. Oh, no. We receive something which enables us to do something. We receive salvation from God which enables us to work out that salvation before a watching world. Don't ever get that backwards. We don't do something in hopes of receiving salvation. No, we've received salvation and that tells us what we ought to do. This is consistent with what Paul writes in Ephesians. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a gift from God. It's not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Then he quickly adds, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul is telling us that that this salvation that Christ gives us, for Christ is in us and he will lead us unto obedience, we've got to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. There is that friction in salvation when it comes to God's sovereignty and human responsibility. One day, C.H. Spurgeon was asked the question, how do you resolve God's sovereignty and human free will? And that great prince of preachers thought for a moment, and then he quickly responded. He said, I've never found the need to reconcile friends. God's sovereignty, human responsibility are not at odds with one another. They're not enemies that need to be reconciled they are not in conflict but rather they're in cooperation one with the other so Paul says what God has worked in you to will and to act it means to have desire to do and actually do it to will and to act according to his good pleasure what God works in you you my friend must work out with fear and trembling So there's something you have to do with the gospel. Something you have to do with your faith. you got to work it out. Now, we know that in the physical realm, there is benefit to working out, right? Physically, we can look around, not just here in the church, but in our culture. We can look around, and we see a lot of flabby people, don't we? Let's just be honest. We look around, and we see flabby people. Sometimes, many times, people are flabby out of negligence. We just didn't exercise as much as we should. We did not work out as frequently in order to make us healthier and stronger. What's true in the physical realm also has some merit in the spiritual realm. This morning I want to ask the question, how flabby is your faith? Do you work out your faith with fear and trembling? Because the more you work out physically, it makes you stronger, it makes you healthier. The more you work out spiritually, it makes your faith stronger and healthier. So my question once again to you is, how flabby is your faith? And oftentimes, people are flabby because of negligence. And people have flabby faith also because of negligence we just don't work it out in our deeds we don't just think about how we ought to act we don't just think about how we ought to respond but 
God is telling us in Philippians chapter 2, what I have worked in you, you must work out towards others. But God, I don't want to work out towards others. And God says, I didn't ask you if you wanted to or not. I'm just telling you the salvation that I have worked in you in Christ must be worked out of you toward others. So what deeds have you done this past week to give evidence that Christ is living in you? What actions have you done this last week intentionally? What effort have you put forward to give evidence that Christ is sticking out of you? Paul says the way you live this incarnational Christian life is first and foremost, you've got to work out what God has worked in you. Secondly, not only do you work out, but he says, I want you to stand out. In verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, I want you to stand out and shine like the stars in the universe. You ever gone outside under the cover of night, but it's a pretty clear night, and you look up to the sky and you see all the stars? And the stars are bright and brilliant because they're against the landscape of the darkness of the universe. And Paul says, in a similar way, I want you to stand out and shine like stars in a very dark universe that you and I call our culture, our world, our generation. You ask the apostle, how do I stand out? I mean, as I am one who has Christ living in me, how do I stand out like the stars? And Paul says, in your words and in your walk. In verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing. Those words, complaining and arguing, they mean grumbling, murmuring, bickering. And if you dig, dig deeper into those words, they're words that convey the idea that people are arguing over differences of opinion. We're not talking about that they're arguing over the sufficiency of Scripture. They're not arguing over the truthfulness of the gospel. They're not offering, arguing over the sole uh, Savior of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, they are arguing, bickering over a difference of opinion. It's trivial matter, stuff that just doesn't make sense. Check this out. Why would the Apostle Paul have to tell this lovely church at Philippi, I don't want you to argue and I don't want you to complain. Do everything without arguing and complaining. The only reason he has to write it is because those saints were arguing and complaining over trivial matters. They were debating and disagreeing over mere opinions. I mean, can you imagine a church of people that would give you their opinion when it's not even asked for and not even needed? Can you imagine being part of a church like that? Can you imagine being in a church where people just give you their opinion and you didn't even ask for it? 2,000 years have passed. Not a whole lot has changed, right? That church looks a lot like a lot of churches today. And Paul says, if you're going to stand out different than the culture, if you're going to stand out like shining stars in the universe, remember what you say. Not only the words you say, but how you say what you say. It was the author of the book of Proverbs 
who said, blessed is the man who guards his lips for he guards his life. Jesus said, of the overflow of your heart, the person speaks. Has your mouth ever gotten you in trouble? I got to be honest with you. Uh, I get in more trouble with my mouth than with my actions. I mean, I pretty much know right from wrong. I know what I ought to do. I know what I should not do. But it's my mouth that gets me in trouble. I, I say things that maybe I shouldn't have said. I give my opinion when my opinion is not even needed or warranted. And there are times that the two-ounce slab of membrane called my tongue gets me in trouble because it starts flapping, it starts moving, and I start saying something. And after I get done saying it, I think to myself, where did that come from and why did I say it? Paul is reminding all of us that if we're going to stand out like shining stars, we've got to watch our words. He also encourages the church to watch how you walk. How you walk is how you live. So he describes them as blameless and pure children of God. The word blameless, innocent of any wrongdoing. The word pure, it means not mixed with any other substance. In his context, the purity is, is moral purity. That we ought not be contaminated by the things of this world. We ought to be blameless and pure children of God as we stand against a crooked, depraved generation. The word crooked, it means bent or twisted. The word depraved, it means warped, means perverted. We said a few moments ago, and we laughed a little bit, how 2,000 years have passed, but not a whole lot's changed. That's also true with the culture and the generation. What Paul is saying in the first century, he's saying to the church, you've got to stand opposite a crooked, depraved generation. The culture in which you live is crooked and it's depraved, and the church has always existed to be counter-cultural. The church has always existed to stand against, to stand opposite a crooked, depraved generation. 2,000 years have passed and nothing has changed. We are called as God's people, as God's church. We stand in opposition to the crooked, depraved, bent and warped culture in which we live. Now here's an honest question. How do you know what is pure versus what is crooked? How do you know what is right versus what is wrong? How do you know what is good versus what is evil. How do you know that? What is the measuring tool that you have at your disposal that measures everything in attitude and action, in practice, uh, in, in even, even, your, even your responses? How, what do you have that measures something as good or bad? And the answer is given us by the Apostle Paul. The word of life that you hold on to. He says, you hold out, it can be translated hold on, to the word of life. Friend, that 
is the measuring rod. That is the tool that God has given us. We have the word of life. And from the word of life, we can determine what is straight and what is crooked. We can determine what is good and what is bad. We can determine what is right and what is wrong. It is not a measuring rod that is based on our own interpretation. It's not that we just wake up one day and we say, you know what? I'm going to determine what is crooked. I'm going to determine what is pure. No, that's not a standard that lasts for eternity. The only one that we have is the very word of life. It's the word of God. Of course, Jesus is the word made flesh. Your Bible is the word in written form. When you hold your Bible, you have the word of life at your disposal. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. The Bible contains truth. Just because a statement is in the Bible, that doesn't automatically make it true. No, it is true, and that's why it's in the Bible. See, we know what is pure. We know what is straight versus what is crooked. We know what is right versus what is wrong. We know what is good versus what is bad, all because of what the Bible teaches us. So from this word of life, we know that there is one God. And this one God is good. We also know from the word of life, the Bible, that God created everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible. He made every person, and every person is completely sinful. And we know from the Bible that God made only two genders. He made them male and female. We know that God instituted marriage. It's the building block of civilization. For the Lord has said that marriage, by God's design, is a biological man and a biological woman for life. Any other equation is not a biblical equation of what marriage should be like. And you and I realize that every person that's been made has been made in the image of God. And that image of God is stamped worth and value that nothing can take away. So because of that, we understand that life begins at conception. The Bible teaches this clearly, that life begins at conception. And from the womb to the tomb, all life is valuable in the sight of God. Therefore, since life is valuable to God, and it begins at the moment of conception, when we hear about abortion, which the last 50 years, we've had nearly 63 million abortions in this country, which is senseless slaughtering in our society, we stand up against that. Why? Because the Bible is true. We hold to the word of life and life begins at conception. And every person that's made is made in the image of God. Therefore, there ought not to be any racism in the church, in the culture, because every person is made with value and made with life. And the only way that any person can be saved is by explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that not because it's my idea, but because I hold on to the word of life. For Jesus is the God man. He stepped out of heaven, stepped in the earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He lived a perfect life. He died uh, your death and my death. He died not for his crimes, but for your crimes. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. I know this to be true. You know this to be true because we hold on to the word of life. And the Bible, which does not shift and change like shadows, tells us there's coming a day when Jesus will return and he will split the eastern sky and he will come as the righteous judge 
And when Jesus returns in a very righteous way, in a perfect way, he will separate his people from not his people. He'll separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the weeds, children of light from the children of darkness. And those of us who are in Christ will go with Christ to an eternal state that we call heaven. And those individuals who have denied Christ, who do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they will go to an eternal place. And that place is a very real place called hell. For heaven and hell are real. We know this because we hold on to the word of life. Paul says to the church, the way you stand out in your words and your walk, the way you appear pure and blameless, the way you shine against a crooked, depraved generation is you hold on to the word of life. Here's my question this morning, beloved. How often do you hold on to the word of life? I know we're Southern Baptists. We're supposed to be people of the book. But are we? I know that on Sunday we stand on the authority of this book. I know that we preach from this book. I know that we applaud and we say amen from the truth of this book. But after this service is over and you go about your regular work week, do you do what the Lord said to Ezekiel when he said to that prophet, eat this scroll, devour his word, digest it, live your life based upon it? I wonder today how many of us hold on to the word of life that holds on to us. Here in our passage Jesus tells us to stand out, and the only way we stand out is under the authority and the truthfulness and the sufficiency of God's holy word. So we're to shine like the stars in the universe. I find that interesting because the only analogy that Jesus uses of himself and us is the imagery that I am the light. I am the light, Jesus says in John's gospel, and then in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says, you are the light of the world. That's the only analogy that Jesus shares with us as his followers. He says, we are to shine like he did. If he's inside of us, he will nudge us and prompt us to shine like the stars of the universe. So we have to work out. We have to stand out. And third and finally, uh, we have to pour out. Paul says in verses 17 and 18, if I am being poured out like a drink offering because of your sacrifice and service, then I rejoice. And what's true for me ought to be true for you. We, we both ought to rejoice. The imagery that Paul uses of being poured out like a sacrifice, poured out like a drink offering, was a common image in Old Testament sacrifices. A person would take an offering, they would take a, a drink, and they, they would pour it out completely on the altar. It was completely empty. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the preceding verses, Paul said that Jesus emptied himself. If Jesus emptied himself, and if this Jesus lives inside of you, guess what he's going to prompt you to do? Empty yourself to pour out your life for him. It's never a question of will you pour out your life. The question is, to whom or to what will you pour out your life? 
Everybody's going to pour out their life. People pour out their lives to themselves and their own desires and their own selfish deeds. People pour out themselves to their family, to their children, to their grandchildren. People pour out their lives on the altar of success and career and power and prestige. We pour out our lives on something. We pour out our lives on someone. And Paul just says to the church, if Jesus lives inside of you, then you pour out your life like a drink offering unto him. Four years later, Paul will write his last epistle, 2 Timothy. He'll speak to his son of the ministry, and he will say, I have already been poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure has come. The word departure means death. For Paul knows, look, if I stand against this crooked, depraved generation long enough, eventually it will carry great earthly consequences. But that's okay, because I'm not here just for what's happening in this world. I'm here to give my life to the one who gave his life for me. And so I will pour out my life for him. I'm already being poured out, Paul says, for I know that my departure, my death is upon me. Remember, we are to be faithful even to the point of death. We are to be obedient even to the point of death. Now, on the backside of this sacrifice and suffering of pouring out your life, you might expect Paul to be sorrowful. Because after all, who in here likes to suffer? Just raise your hand. I didn't think so. I mean, there's not a person. Guess what? In the other service, nobody raised their hand either. We don't like to suffer. But Paul says, if Christ is inside of us, He'll nudge us to pour out our life unto his service. So, so we will always be countercultural. We'll stand against this wicked, depraved, warped generation. And, and it will come with some consequences and we will suffer. But on the backside of that suffering is not sorrow. <laughs> on the backside of the suffering is joy. We have joy because we know that what we've labored for Christ is not a labor in vain. Do you remember um, that silly little sacred song that we sang as children the song that had these lyrics I've got the joy 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 down in my heart I've got the joy 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 down in my heart down in my heart to stay and if the devil doesn't like it <laughs> he can sit on attack ouch sit on attack if the devil doesn't like it he can sit on attack sit on attack and stay I mean it's a silly song but it's great theology. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And if it's in my heart, it will stick out. If Jesus is inside of me, he will stick out. What is the secret of living the Christian life? It is incarnational Christian living. What Jesus has done inside of you must stick out. So this morning, let me wrap it with these questions. Is Jesus living inside of you? Is Jesus living inside of you? If he's not, today can be the day of your salvation. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God's son. Commit your life to him. And what God works in you, he'll enable you to work out with joy. Does Jesus live inside of you?
If the answer is no, today can be the day of your salvation. If the answer is yes, that Jesus does live inside of you, then let him stick out. Johnny was right, wasn't he? If Jesus is so big, and I'm so small, and I ask Jesus to live in my heart, won't he stick out? You got it. If Jesus lives inside of you, he will stick out. So work out your faith with fear and trembling. Stand out like shining stars against the universe and pour out your life in sacrifice to Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we pray that um, if there's one here who does not have Jesus living inside of them, that today will be the day of salvation. For those of us who do have Christ inside of us, Lord, help us to live in such a way that Jesus sticks out. For some, we need to come and pray. The altar's open. For some, we need to come and join the church. For some, we need to come and make known what you're doing in our lives. Father, help us to respond in obedience to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.